0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Detroit Tiger Hall of Famer Alan Trammell and discusses the timeless double play duo of Trammell and Whitaker, as well as Trammell's journey to Cooperstown.
1: Like Ernie Harwell used to say, when the Tigers turn to double play, you get two for the price of one with jack and i going into the hall of fame together and now here's your host brett boone
2: we got alan trammell alan thank you for coming on uh this is great i'm so glad i can call you hall of famer it took you long enough
1: well i appreciate that booney and uh yeah you know what i actually uh, didn't think it was going to happen um uh, but uh i was pleasantly surprised a few years ago when uh a fellow teammate of mine, Jack Morris, and I were were elected into the uh, the veterans' uh, side. And uh, again, what a phone call! You can't even imagine how it all came down. Uh, we could I could tell you a quick story about that if you if you want to if you want a minute or two. Uh, <laughs> but I got the phone course. call uh, working with the Tigers as a, a special assistant uh, to the general manager. Uh, I was heading to the winter meetings, which you were uh, were in Orlando, so. I was on the flight and on that same flight, a lot of the baseball people, Boach and uh, Bruce Boachy and, and, and uh, uh, Brad Ausmus and Trevor Hoffman, and, and there was about, there's probably uh, eight to 10 of us and so uh they knew the hall of fame knew that i was going to be on that flight and they were supposed to make the announcement at six o'clock eastern my flight arrived uh, landed arrived at 5 50 p.m so they were waiting if we were delayed it might have messed things up so i'm getting off the plane and i'm i'm back in the back of the plane and i'm still in the aisle when I got a phone call from New York and I saw the area code and my heart started pounding and I uh, was hoping it was the call. Well, it was, well, I wanted to jump up and down. Now here, I'm getting a hall of fame call saying I've just been selected uh, and elected into the hall of fame. I wanted to jump up and down and do something crazy, but I'm in an airplane with kids around me that want to go to Wally world and Disney world and all that good stuff. So I had to keep my composure And you know, I'm listening to this phone call. It's only a couple of minutes. So by the time I get off, those guys are all gone and they went down to baggage. Uh, They had asked me the hall of fame, not to you know, say anything until 615 when they were going to make that announcement. So this is all true. So this is all being bottled up. I kind of stalled, went to the bathroom. And by the time I got to to the baggage claim they were wondering where I was. Um, It was 615 and I let out this big old smile and, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, you know, we had a little celebration there. We all went to Orlando to go to the winter meetings. But uh, that was quite a few days there there in Orlando with all the, you know, the press coverage and all that good stuff. But that's how it was told, Booney. And I this thing it's a pretty good story that uh, I'm not sure too many Hall of Famers can say that's how it was. They were, uh, they were told the news that they were uh, elected into the Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, and, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's a picture floating around of you with, with a bunch of your buddies on that flight. Is that true? That is that true. Is, that is, I've it. seen it. John Boggs. See, you're ruining it. Alan, you're, you're already ruining all my questions. <laughs> I'm kidding.
1: Uh, well, he, you know what? John Boggs, I love him, and, and, and we all do. But uh, he, was, he was quick-witted, man, and he said, let's take a picture, well, the, you know, how these things, how quickly they get out there and so within minutes uh you know it was out uh on the internet but uh yeah we all kind of took a meal down there by the uh uh we're standing a couple guys kneel i think brad was one of them that was on his knees and uh you know it was just a cool picture and and uh just telling that story you know puts a smile to my face because as i started this i wasn't expecting it i mean i was on the regular ballot for 15 plus years and you know it didn't happen and so i, I was fine with that I mean, i I know I was recognized as a pretty darn good player, but I thought I might be one of those guys that was just a little short. But, uh, man, what a phone call to get. i, I got to be honest with you. It's very cool.
2: And a little story I have for you is I've only been to the Hall of Fame and, and the, uh, the inductions one time. Happened to be yours. And no. I saw Jack there, and you, you might not remember this, but I was at yours. Oh no no! I do now. remember, I do now remember,
1: remember. and road. I was sitting.
2: And, yeah, I do, I do. Right, and you came over, and I talked to you. And for for the people out there listening to the Boone podcast, Alan was my uh, was a coach with the Padres when I played briefly with the Padres in two thousand. But I just want to say that that trip to Cooperstown and to get to see that whole extravaganza that they put on it's it's quite a spectacle. First and foremost, but that particular year, I mean, the speeches were so good, but when you sat down and we talked briefly because everybody was pulling at you every which way, there was something in your eyes that I, you know, because maybe it's because you'd been through that grind. You'd been through that 15 years. You didn't get in. It's one thing being that first ballot Hall of Famer and everybody told you and it was kind of a no brainer, Derek Jeter type situation. But with you, you had gone through, been denied all of a sudden, a little bit later in life, it comes to you. And the appreciation I saw just in your face for the brief time that we got to talk. Uh, was pretty special and, and i and I saw a similar thing from Jack up there he he is he's had a similar uh path that you've had you know rejected reject rejected now all of a sudden uh, a little bit later in life you get rewarded uh with with such an honor and I thought it was really cool and I wanted to tell you I remember that and I remember that little conversation we had well let's get back to where it all started and Tram, as much as me and you, I, I know you pretty good. I mean, we've been buddies for a long time, but I really started to look at—I really started to look at your career, and it's amazing the the uniqueness with you and your partner, Sweet Lou, and and it even goes back to the minor leagues. And then I checked 1977. And you both had about the same amount of at-bats in in 77. I'm thinking, did they both get the September call-up? And then the next year, you had 500-plus at-bats. Tell me what it's like playing with the same partner <laughs> for all those years and how special that was.
1: Well, Booney, I appreciate you, uh, you bringing this up because, uh, you know, he was my partner, again, for so many years, and he just doesn't get the love that he deserves. And – um I just, again, I'm appreciative of you uh, letting me, you know, mention him. And I'm going to talk a few minutes about Lou is that people don't recognize what kind of a player he was. And again, we played in different eras and, you know, now it's numbers are a lot more sexy and that's not just baseball, it's all sports, it's just the way it is. And so at the time we were just doing our jobs and enjoying ourselves. But to look back and say that we played 19 years together In the major leagues with one shortstop one second baseman nobody can say that we are by far the longest running double play combination in the history of baseball when i say that i'm proud of that and and we both are but again when we were playing you're not worrying about those things you're just doing your doing what you love to do but to do it with somebody next to you for all those years i mean honestly we we had an advantage because as you know you put in your time and you worked with you know shortstops uh you know some for a couple years uh some you know it uh, wasn't as long but the fact that we played together longer and we knew each other like the back of our hands is was an advantage and obviously we put in the time and we're both you know basically the same age so we came up together and you know we played a short time in the minor leagues the tigers weren't very good at that time so they were looking for young talent to come up and lou and i and. Lance Parrish and Kirk Gibson and Jack Morris were just a few of the ones that they brought up. But again, to have that sidekick, um, you know, again, we could lean on each other and he was a pretty, pretty damn good player booney man. And again, he just does not get the love that he certainly deserves. And again, numbers now they're somewhat distorted because it's just different. Um, But the fact of the matter is we were taught the game of baseball by Sparky Anderson, some other good mentors, that really taught us how to play it and play the game of baseball, you know, the way, the right way. And, you know, I'll take that to the grave. Um, You know, I just believe that there's a certain way that's never going to change again, offense. It's sexy. That's how people want to look at things, but you still got to catch the ball. Don't you, you got a few gold gloves and I'm sure you're as proud of those as anything you've done in baseball, because defense is still very, very important playing the game base running, all those kinds of things that was really stressed in that, in that era. And I'm sure your dad and your grandpa could you know, told you those things when you were younger. So, again, I'm very appreciative of playing with Lou Whitaker and some of the other guys. But, obviously, Lou and I are linked forever. And I'm hoping someday that – and it's going to happen – that Lou Whitaker will be, get that same phone call that myself and Jack Morris got a few years ago. And that call is to get in and tell Lou that he is a Hall of Famer as well.
2: Yeah. And, and it's still, it's still, I mean, I still can't believe it. And you just reiterated it. You played 19 years with the same partner. That is so exactly. I, my longest tenure was uh, Barry Larkin and myself in Cincinnati. And what a great thing we had, but it right? was for five years. And, and now in nowadays terms, that would probably be considered a pretty good run But then, but then tram and wit, come in over the top of us with 19 years It's just something yes. it'll probably never happen again well, I'm
1: going to ask it, you a trivia question you know who is number two and it's a pretty good group but again when you start thinking about the history of baseball you know you start to think wow there's there's obviously so many years and so many great players but this the, the tandem that's second uh, Smith and her just uh part no um it <laughs> is Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins they had 12 oh, plus years run. together. You know, had uh, Davey Concepcion and Joe Morgan were like nine. Garvey, uh, yeah. not Garvey, Bill Russell and Bill, uh, Davey Lopes uh, had seven or eight, somewhere in that range. But you can Google all that stuff. But when you start looking at it, it's like, well, these guys played together. No, they didn't. Uh, they didn't play that long. They didn't know. They played together a few years. And like I said, you played with Lark for five years. That's, that's still a long time. But now fast forward that and say nine years that's just incredible when I say that so we're we're again both very proud of that
2: and I and I think too I wanted to touch on this uh you know when you're coming up and you're a young player you have people that you that usually in the position that you're playing I'm sure you had guys before you got to the big leagues who you looked to who you watched on tv uh my career lapped over a little bit with you and Lou a uh, few mm-hmm. years, I, I you know, at the beginning of my career, you guys were just finishing up, but I grew up watching, you know, and I'm a second baseman and, and I'm watching the guys like Lou Whitaker, usually the guys at your position. And I just want to tell you that that, that brief meeting we had at the Hall of Fame and you were going everywhere, everybody, you know, when, you, when you're the Hall of Famer, everybody wants a piece of that day, get a soundbite or whatever. But at that same table, your partner came over to me. I'm looking at him and I'm going, I know him. And he came over (laughs) and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Brett Boone. I said, yeah, he said, Lou Whitaker. And he introduced himself and he sat down. It was one of the most pleasant conversations I've had. And I was because I had never met Lou. And he sat right. down and we right. just had we just had a discussion about life and baseball. And it was he was such a class act. It was such a cool thing. And, and I know, Tram, you've told me all the stories in the past about Lou and, and what a good guy. I've never heard a bad thing about him, but it was pretty cool that day. Uh, just having that brief encounter with with a guy I grew up watching. So that was cool. That was well, my story.
1: Still gonna, I'm going to still continue to give him love. And again, I'm going to keep pushing as much as I can. Uh, to try to help that cause. But uh, again, you know, I was more the outspoken one. And it's just, again, you know, Lewis from Virginia, I'm from Southern California, just different, different places where we grew up. We were both taught the same way. He knew exactly what he was doing. And, uh, you know, deep down inside, I mean, I, I, we always thought that the both of us, that if we ever were so lucky to get into the Hall of Fame, that we would. Going together. I just think it's still a great story, and it still will be a great story, Booney, when it happens. Uh, And when Jack got in, I mean, obviously that's a teammate. I wasn't expecting that. I thought Jack was going to get in years before. uh, And you described that, you know, both of us, the way our reaction uh, to a tee, to be honest with you. But again, Lou and I should be in the Hall of Fame together. If I'm in, Lou Whitaker should be in. So again, I might mention him a couple more times in the podcast. But that's how strongly I feel about him. He's my buddy. He always will be. And, uh, you know, whatever I can do, I I think I've stated my case many times. But when I get the opportunity to just make sure that people recognize and think about his, because I think his name just gets kind of lost in the shuffle. And so that's kind of my point. But you really start to dig down and get into it. uh, You find out he was a darn good baseball player.
2: Well, I'm talking to about as good a guy as I could ab- about um, what makes a great double play combination. I know for me, there's certain things that that uh, made for a great partner. Right. For Alan Trammell, what makes a great combo? Talk a little bit about the intricacies of your partner up the middle.
1: Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that when you the more work you put in, and when I say work, I, I – I, I know that's the word that you need to say so people can understand, but it was never work. It was always fun, and it was something that we enjoyed doing. But uh, the timing, the timing, and, and putting those, the reps in year in and year out. So uh, I'm going to just fast forward for a second. So obviously when you're younger, you're going to do more reps. But even when we got into our career, you know, later into our careers, Every game that we played, if we took batting practice, we always did basically the same routine. Now the reps might be less, but we always turned a few double plays. And it might, it only might be five or six, it might be 15 to 20, it it, it varied from day to day. But we always felt like we just wanted to make sure that we were clicking on all cylinders. And now, you know, I go into, you know, today's players, and, and I'm just telling you the facts. I'm part of the Detroit Tigers organization, and I go and, you know, work with our younger guys, and I'm always stressing to the coaches to put the double play combination in the same hitting group so they can take their ground balls together. That gets back to my first comment about the timing. I think it's so important that they work together as many times as they can. That's how you get better. That's how over the time you get that timing. So then when I go and catch the double play ball and I'm going a little bit to my right, not the back end, but just sliding a little bit to my right, I'm catching the ball. I'm actually throwing it to Lou before I would look up. When I would play with other guys, I would have a tendency to kind of look to see where they were at. And that was one of the advantages that we had because of all the ground balls and all the double plays that we turn. And I know you know exactly what I'm talking about because double plays oftentimes are bang, bang, and that could be the difference between safe and out. But that only comes with reps and timing and doing it over and over again.
2: I, I just felt with, you know, and, and Larkin and myself, the one thing we got accustomed to was we trusted, talent, we, trust, like you guys were. we trusted each other 100%. Right. And it allowed it allowed us to to make a great play and make a a, a do or die play because we trusted it on the other end. And it seemed like I could wheel and deal and, and, make as great a play as I wanted to. And if my throw didn't have to be perfect, because I knew my partner was going to pick me up and vice versa. And and you get that trust over years. And I'm sure that's what you, ha- it, it's a really good feeling. And unless you've, you've played in the middle with a partner for a long time, you know, and, and there's quite a few of us out there that can speak to it, but it, it is really a a special thing that, that, uh, that you get over years of just repetition and, and playing together and, you know, it becomes really fun. And it, it hit me when you said you didn't even have to look for him because you knew where he was. And it, it's something, exactly. you know, without Just getting, without getting weird get the for ball. the fans, it Just is like that.
1: Just hit me the ball. And, we'll, you know, we're athletes. And obviously, you know, you're trying to put in the right spot, but you can't do it every time. But, you know, you've got to adjust. And so I can see you and Lark because uh, I'm going to give you some props, Booney. But, uh, yeah, you were a pretty damn good player yourself.
2: Well, thank you. I want to talk about uh, some managers and and some managers you played for. Another thing here, I'm I'm looking at, at Alan Trammell. I'm going over the list on Google and I'm going, wait a minute. Not only is it you and Whitaker, but it's also Sparky pretty much start to finish. That's another unbelievable thing that not too many people get to to have the same skipper for that many years so i i picked out four skippers and i just want to talk wow. about each one tell me about sparky anderson
1: well that's gonna we're gonna take a few more minutes on on sparky because uh we had um, you know all of us that get to the major leagues obviously we have some mentors and uh there's more than one but number one would be sparky and just because First of all, when we got to the major league, um, he had already had that success with the big red machine and being a baseball fan, even though we're playing, we're fans as well. I was well aware of what he had accomplished with the Cincinnati Reds. And so lo and behold, you know, all of a sudden Sparky comes early in our career over to the Detroit Tigers. And so I'm looking at him going a little bit in awe, like, my God, you know, he came in second place one year and got fired. I'm like, wow, that's, (laughs) that's pretty damn good. So the timing was is that uh, he was available and uh, June of 1979, the Tigers decided to, uh, uh, to, to not let Sparky wait. Somebody was going to pick him up at some point. And he came in and finished up over half a season with us and kind of just was watching so 1980, it really started, but he was really tough on us um, and it was a good tough, but again, going back to being in awe and just, you know, having all the respect in the world, but man, he really laid the lumber down, but he knew exactly what he was doing. And he, you know, the younger guys, uh, you know, that, that was his kind of his babies. He had a reputation. I don't, I never understood this booney that he liked veteran players over young players. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, Lou, myself, Lance Parrish, Jack Morris, Kirk Gibson, uh, Chet Lemon, Steve Kemp at the time, and Jason Thompson, and and, and a, a few others. Um, did I mention Jack, Dan, Dan Petrie? I'm just, again, I'm getting a little bit, uh, I wanna make sure I don't miss some of the guys. Those are young players, and he developed all of those guys. And so, as we got better, obviously he loosened the reins, but it was tough love early on, just like when you were growing up teachers, you know, the way things were in that generation. um, But it was what we needed. And I look back and I'm just so thankful that we crossed paths because he taught us how to play the game the right way. And, you know, it was all more about the team. And if you're good enough, you know, your statistics, you're going to have statistics at the end of the day. You know, sometimes those are tough things for for young players to really grasp you know because we all we we want to establish ourselves but uh he really taught us again how to do it the right way and again i mentioned him in my hall of fame speech i meant it that uh you know he was the number one mentor for me and for lou and for others and lou and i were actually fortunate to play for him for 17 years so he was the manager most people again recognize him with cincinnati and the big red machine and rightfully so. But my point is, he managed the Tigers for 17 years, as was was in Cincinnati for nine. He was almost twice as long in D, in Detroit, and people don't re- realize that. So I just want to make sure that the, the fans out there understand that Sparky Anderson was a great manager for two different teams.
2: Bruce Bochy.
1: Bruce Bochy. Well, that was when we were together. That's uh, when we were together. So... Sparky, uh, again, this goes back to Sparky a little bit. Sparky used to always tell me, again, being from the National League, that Tram, he goes, Tram, you'd love the National League. You'd love the National League. So I decided after a few years after my career was over, and I'm from San Diego, uh, that I uh, had an opportunity to join Bruce Bochy's staff. And I thought it was, looking back, it was the great, the best thing I could have done because then I got to learn the National League and then, lo and behold, I think Bruce Bochy is going to be getting that call to the Hall of Fame as well someday, Booney. And so this was, you know, a few years ago, but still up and coming. Bochy was a sharp guy. And I just learned the National League. That's how it started. And I got a chance to, to you know, be with a couple other guys. But uh, Bruce Bochy was, you know, again, this big guy, a backup, back, backup catcher for his career. Knew the pitching, and I thought he handled the bullpen as well as any manager that I've seen. Lou Pinella. Ooh, well, again, you had a little few years with (laughs) old Lou. Uh, Yeah. um, And again, uh, a a perception about Lou Pinella that is, uh, again, probably warranted in some degrees as far as, you know, amount uh, of you know some sometimes some of the, the the tantrums with the umpires that you know with the YouTube and you see some of the highlights of Lou oftentimes it was a confrontation with a with an umpire <laughs> well, he didn't win all those ball games and be a great manager for so many years by just you know getting in confrontations with umpires. He knew what he was doing, and he knew that bullpen as well as any anybody. I just felt like there was a presence about Lou Pinella that when he stepped into the dugout or the clubhouse that people knew exactly where he was and I thought it was helpful you know again to get guys fired up and to get them to ready to play and uh, there was never every, any problem with that and uh, I just thought that uh, he did not get the credit for being as sharp and smart as uh, you know again the perception might appear to the outsiders that you know here's a guy that you know had these good lineups and uh, again the perception of about a lot of managers that oh they just had this you know push button club and you just write these names in there and it's a push button club and then you know they go out there and perform well it's not that easy is it it's really not and that manager to me deserves a lot more credit than, than oftentimes he gets and lou would be under that falls under that umbrella
2: and the last one I want to ask you about is a teammate of yours, Kurt Gibson.
1: Well, Gibby, again, you know, he, along with Lou, there's this perception of this wild and crazy and out of control guy, which is the farthest thing. Well, I let let me let me phrase it this way. Some of that is true. You know, there is that fire <laughs> in there, that football mentality. a Booney, uh, even to this day that I'm still involved and and uh and I get to see the you know today's players I've never been around a guy a player then back then or today like Kirk Gibson there's nobody they broke the mold with Kirk Gibson and I mean that all in a positive way and once he was able to channel that football mentality that's when he became a baseball player because, you know, again, that wasn't quite working, uh, you know, to try to grunt in all that true baseball. It doesn't really work that way. So once he was able to understand what it really was to be a major league player and to put in the work both defensively and offensively, uh, you know, he became a pretty darn good player. And then he got into the coaching side and then became a manager And this guy studies as much as anybody I've ever been around. I guess that's the perception. People would go, really, Kirk Gibson? Sharp? Well, both his parents were teachers. So that kind of gives you a little direction on really how he was brought up. He's a sharp guy and a smart guy and studies his ass off about anything. If you talk to him or you give him a subject about anything in life, he'll do the research and come back to you and you'd be amazed at what his you know what he'll tell you about uh that subject that you uh you were you know you asked him to to uh, research a very sharp guy uh, one of my best friends and still today we talk you know i'm not going to say we talk every week but we talk multiple times a month uh he's got parkinson's he's still living his life he's doing great and uh i gotta say i love the guy man this is this is there's there's not another kurt gibson that's that's for damn sure (laughs)
2: And I want to I want to change over, and I want to talk about you got an opportunity uh, to manage for a I few did. years. What, what was the? Uh, what did it teach? You? What did you first of all? What did you take from the guys you'd been around, the managers? And I know before you you got the opportunity to manage, you were with Boach. uh, sure. Obviously, you were with Sparky. What did you take into that? Right. Uh, what surprised you, and uh, what did you learn from it?
1: Well, um, I learned that, uh, you know, the game of baseball, and I'm sure you've probably heard this once or twice, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, the game will humble you. And it does to everybody that's ever played or managed or coached. I mean, at some point in time, obviously, as a player, it's going to get you uh, a little bit more. But the next best thing or closest thing to playing is managing because as a coach, you know, if you're the infield or the hitting or pitching, you have your, 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 your babies, a group. As a manager, they're all your babies, so you're worried about each and every one. Uh, the unfortunate, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I know that, you know, 2003, we went through a total, you know, rebuild where we basically clean house uh, and we lost 119 games, which is, it is one of the worst records in baseball history. But I really, you know, people say, oh, was that your worst year, Booney? That wasn't the worst year. Really, it wasn't. We, we weren't very good. Um, nobody expected to lose quite that many games. But the coaching staff did a hell of a job. And I give them a lot of credit because they never backed off. We did a lot of teaching, obviously. You know, it didn't really play out into the wins. But uh, I'll fast forward and in three years, in 2006, the Detroit Tigers went from 119 losses in 2003 to the World Series in 06. And they lost to the Cardinals, but they got from that point to this point in three years. So it can be done. And, you know, Mr. Mr. Illich, the owner at the time, you know, he, he was gracious enough that when he saw some um, – Uh, some progress that he went out and opened a checkbook and he ended up adding some players. I was not there in 2006, but we had helped some of those kids get better. And that was from the coaching. And one was Kurt Gibson, who was on my coaching staff. He was a broadcaster for Fox Sports Detroit, which he's doing now. But going back, I got him out of the booth. And I remember many people not understanding, like, Tram, what are you doing? You're, you're bringing a crazy man onto the bench. Do you know what you're doing? And that was one area that I felt very strongly about, that I knew what I was doing, that people did not know Kirk Gibson, for an example. And then look, look what's happened to him you know, in that time. So I feel very good about the coaching staff, all the guys that we brought on. Obviously, you need the talent. You need the horses. So we got humbled a little bit. But I learned that, you know, each and every day we show up, you prepare, you do the best you can. Some things are just out of your control. But, you know, losing is not easy. And Sparky obviously, you know, was was had been a winner for most of his career. Boats. Again, I know those things eat at a manager. They they ate at me. But you still have to hold your composure and when the media comes in before and after every single game, because that's a major league rule, you've got to talk to the press. You've got to hold your composure and act like, you know what, you're under control and you got, you know, you you you're, you're no your you know what together, even though every occasionally you're gonna, you know, probably lose it a little bit in your voice tone. But I tried my best and uh, you know, it didn't work out as far as the wins and losses, Booney. But the fact that I tried it and we weren't afraid to take on a major challenge uh, is something that I look back on very fondly. And I think the coaches that that I brought on did as well. And, uh, you know, I moved on to bigger and better things, so to speak. But the fact that I did it, that I was not afraid of this humongous challenge, you know, I think, again, I I, I think my coaching staff deserves a lot of credit as well.
2: So you grew up in San Diego. You went to Kearney High School. Correct. And in nineteen eighty-four, you guys end up winning the World Series, but you're playing against the Padres. So essentially, the city you grew up in, you're playing in the World Series. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, that is that is definitely one of the highlights. Uh winning the World Series is, you know, number one with the Hall of Fame. That's that. those are one A and one B. That they they're that's it. Uh Because when you sign up to play, you know, everybody says kind of the same thing. You want to win. You want to win a championship. And at least one time in my career, I got a chance to say that. And and we did it. And to do it in my hometown, uh, I think that's what kind of just is icing on the cake. That that's a stadium, Booney. that, you know, I had been to. And again, you know, you grew up down. I know you were up in Orange County, but your, your grandpa was down here. Your grandparents were down here. I know you were down at that ballpark as well. But I had been in that ballpark many times as a youngster. I was actually a vendor for the Padres, the Chargers, the Aztecs, you know, (laughs) when I was in junior high and early in my high school. And then, you know, I I did it for, you know, a handful of years. Uh, But again, now to go and play a game. We never had played in there, but I had been in there to play a baseball game a World Series baseball game and looking around and just seeing that stadium just kind of smiling inside uh, was very, very special. And, uh, you know, what to cap it off with a world championship. I mean, I know it was, it was better for me because we played the Padres and it's kind of a better story. I guess to get it to the World Series, it doesn't matter who you play. If you win, it's all good. Uh, but for me to come home and, you know, people would tell me, my friends as well, we were rooting for you, but we wanted the Padres. You know, and I tell them the same story. I'm going to tell them you the same thing. I just tell them strictly business.
2: Very cool. Well, Tram, I really really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Class act. You always have been. uh, Once again, congratulations. I know it's been a few years now and it's sunk in, but that was really special you getting into the Hall of Fame. Well-deserved. Hopefully your partner gets there in the next few years. And something we do at the end of the Boone podcast is we get a question from the fans, and the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, is going to come back and ask you that question.
0: Hi, Alan. How are (laughs) you?
1: I'm doing well, Dan. What can I? What's your question for me?
0: All right. the The question that is being asked to you is from David in Reno, and it says this: okay. "Alan, talk about the time you were on Magnum PI with none other, uh, none other than Tom Selleck."
1: <laughs> oh, well, well, uh, lo and behold, uh, do you know who was with me on that particular show? Who's that? Uh, it was my second baseman, Lou Whitaker, <laughs> and so the story was as a uh, if people uh, remember this show, Magnum PI, Tom Selleck wore a Detroit Tiger hat, and he was known for that. So, during the course of the 1983 season, uh, one of our uh, representatives for Lou and I wrote a letter to their producer. He had mentioned it to me, and I blew it off like, "Come on, they're not—you know—they don't want us to go on there." Well, lo and behold, they wrote back saying. We'd love to have Lou and Tram on the show. So when the season was over in 1983, we flew out the end of October and spent a few days in uh, Honolulu, Diamond Head, which is where they filmed it. And we spent a couple days with Tom and and their cast. And, uh, you know, we had three lines apiece. It wasn't like we were into acting or anything. They just wanted us to kind of be ourselves. And part of the skit was Tom was you know, doing his, uh, his, you know, his private detective and he happened to be in Detroit and they made this little scene that we ran this little bar that, uh, you know, Tom Selleck happened to be there talking to the bartender about, man, I'm here in Detroit and I want to go see a tiger ball game and the game is sold out. Well, who happens to be standing right next to Tom Selleck is Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell. And we have a couple lines of pieces I mentioned, and we happen to have a couple of tickets in our coat pockets, and that's kind of how the scene was. It was just kind of a catchy little little deal, but that's uh, uh, that's how it went. And Tom is is really a big baseball fan and a big Tiger fan, and uh, I've run across him over the years, and it's just it's like you know it's like it was thirty years ago. The guy is really a, 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 you know to me a, a, a great actor and a good friend of mine and uh just something that you know we can say we did we had to join the screen actors guild and uh you know what it was just something that was pretty cool for both lou and i and something we'll never forget
0: all right alan well thank you so much for coming on the brett boom podcast it was thrilling to have you on
1: all right stay safe guys mailbag
0: all right brett you know that sound it's time for the brett Boone mailbag you ready to roll i'm ready to roll all right let's get it going this first one is from Tom from San Francisco. Brett, what is the best gift you have ever given and received in your life?
2: <laughs> you know what I got? I got this year for Christmas. I got the coolest book from my parents. And it's a, you open the book and it has a three-minute video so you have to plug the book in and then it went, it's got about 250 to 300 pages of my career start to finish. And not, not not the one of the coolest gifts because from an egotistical standpoint, Oh, look at my career. But it's really cool that, that, the way they did it and it just kinda now I, I remember reading articles from them and when I'm in the minor leagues to the day I retired. And it's all really packaged up, really nice, really professional. Uh so that's one of the coolest gifts I've gotten. Um oh gifts I've given I don't know. You'd have to ask the person I gave it to. I, I don't think any of my gifts are cool. I try to get out there and and be real uh you know, original in my gift, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm the greatest gift giver.
0: All right. Kids like
2: the kids like cash.
0: <laughs> they do like cash. They do like cash. All right. That was number one. Number two. Brett. This one is from Alex in Sarasota. What was your first car?
2: Well, it was kind of an orange pickup four on the floor Chevy. And this is the mid eighties. So that's when the, the four wheel drives that were lifted up high, usually the Nissans or the Toyota. And I remember all, all summer I worked and my dad said, I'll match whatever you make this summer and I'll go to the auction. I got a a car dealer buddy. That's going to take me to the dealer auction and, and I'm going to get you a car. And I said, sweet. So I gave him my, I think I had 2,500 bucks. So I was going to get a $5,000 car and I'm thinking, oh, he's bringing me home this Toyota Sweet 4x4. He brought me this orange diesel stick shift. That didn't last very long. Something else happened. And then I ended up getting like a, a blue mini truck with stripes on the side. <laughs> it was the worst. But I'll, but I'll tell you what. I never had a problem with it. Never broke down. Never let me down. So, yeah, there, it, it kind of a combo. Those are my first two. And the last one.
0: This one is from Kevin in Kansas City. What is your favorite TV show?
2: Current TV show I like the the show Succession and I don't know if it's on it's one of those I don't know if it's a Netflix or a, or a Showtime or whatever. Uh, I I'm kind of into these Netflixy things now. Me too. I, you know. I I like uh but it's Succession. I like Billions. I liked uh ozark mm. but all all-time favorite show start to finish uh that's not really relevant these days uh was seinfeld for me great show great show
0: i love seinfeld Kerb was actually my favorite too career enthusiasm that's awesome. pretty good I, awesome, I, I, i'm with you on that that would be the brett boone mailbag and for those of you that were kind enough to send your questions please keep them coming you could tweet that adam at and at, add at the boone 29 that's his twitter handle And that's where we've been getting a lot of these questions. So keep on sending them. And you can find Brett Boone on just about every social media, Facebook and Instagram. And you can throw him some questions over there as well. For the former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. We'll see you on the next one.